All right, this is Kent Roundy. I'm back again with USH Med Student here. Got a new topic today and a new group of uh, students and, well, people here with me hanging out. Uh, today's topic, we're going to look at divalproics or valproic acid. Talk a little bit about that and see if we can provide some answers to questions that commonly show up on the board exam. Uh, divalproics, or vi divalproics or valproic acid is a pretty common molecule used in a lot of places and we'll kind of see where this goes. Before we start, let's introduce the group we've got with us. Uh, who's going first here? I'll go first. Uh, my name is Jed Roundy. Um, only vaguely related to Kent Roundy, um, not a prospective medical student, but good good place to be, good things. So, so what you're saying is roped into this as my almost son. Yes, yes, that's what's going on here. <laughs> not that you're claiming that relationship, you're just saying I might. Exactly, exactly. Got it. Uh, and I'm Cam Meekum. I'm a third year medical student from the Southern Utah campus at Rocky Vista University. All right, Cam, so this question came up a little while ago. We were talking about Depakote and hair loss. Mm. And uh, we thought that Depakote, uh, which is the brand name for uh, valproic acid and some forms of valproic acid, uh, that it might be worth having a brief podcast talking about some of the questions that show up on the shelf exam. So uh, huge topic here. This is a medication that's been around forever, right? Yeah. Tell me what you learned while you were reading, and, and maybe I'll ask you some questions, you ask sure. me some questions. We'll just kind of see where this goes. How does that sound? I think that's a great idea. So I'm excited about this. Uh, when, when the question came up and that correlation between valproic acid and hair loss, when that question was asked, initially I didn't understand because I, I never connected those two things in my mind. I was always thinking topiramate was the main uh, anti-epileptic that would cause hair loss, but from what I found, it's kind of a, across the board, and, and that's one of the main uh, side effects for valproic acid. Um, so I was able to, to look into some possible mechanisms of actions. Uh, I found a couple of papers, and so hopefully I can ask you a couple of questions about that. Too. We'll see if I know any of the answers. <laughs> All right, what have you got for me? So the main, the main function that I found, the, I, I found a couple of papers uh, that were published uh, several years ago, and they were thinking initially that valproic acid decreased a certain enzyme called the uh, biotinidase enzyme activity. Um, but through their subsequent research, they found that it really doesn't cause any change in that the, the KI of that enzyme. Um, and they were able to see in pediatric patients that when treated with zinc and biotin, that the hair loss or the alopecia was usually reversed, as well as decre or, uh, decreasing or, or getting off of valproic acid, it's usually reversed as well. So that was the main, the main topic, or I guess the main piece of information that I found. So let me, let me go back and summarize. We're talking about, and I've got this written down so I get it right, Telogen effluvium, in other words, reversible. Mm -hmm. right, we're talking about a reversible condition. Depakote seems, when given orally, it seems to cause the hair follicle, hair follicle to go into a rest state, and when Depakote is either withdrawn or zinc is added, I, I've also read selenium. Yeah, and biotin. Uh, and I think biotin. those three were the main ones. So if somebody needs to be on Depakote, 
divalproic um, or valproic acid, then you can give either of those three molecules or withdraw the, the offending molecule, right? Mm -hmm. um, I didn't find really good data on like, I, I only found case report kinds of information about those three solutions. Did you find anything different than that? Yeah, I didn't find any hard evidence in terms of mechanisms of actions or, or any, you know, anything to further elucidate the idea. Um, it was all just case presentations most of the time. So just to be clear, when you're talking about the mechanism of action, you were talking about the mechanism of action for hair loss, not for neuronal stabilization that seems to help in migraine prophylaxis, in seizure prophylaxis, in stabilization of manic episodes associated with bipolar disorder, right? Correct, yeah, that's mainly, it's mainly focused on why is it causing the hair loss, and I couldn't elucidate it further, so. Yeah, I, I actually saw some really interesting things about this. Now, who, who knew this? But apparently there's some research, I believe it was happening, it was referenced in an article published by a journal published out of India, and what they said was it, it turns out that valproic acid, if you put it in a cream and rub it on, was it mice or rats, I don't remember what it was, it actually causes hair growth. Well, that was one of those gee whiz topics, I was trying to like accrue a list, that was one of them where I was like, who knew that? I, I felt the exact same way. It sounds like you ran across the same yeah. article. Okay. Uh, Depakote, so, so let's even go back a, a step further. Divalproix and valproic acid. As far as I can understand, and if you came across something that is different, let me know. Divalproix is two molecules held together with a sodium ion. But that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I, I, I'm not great at pushing ions, but I'm trying to figure out how one sodium ion holds together two uh, valproic acid molecules. So if anybody who ends up listing to this molecule knows the answer to this, post it underneath so that we can uh, get this figured out. But uh, divalproic seems to have a few less gastrointestinal uh, side effects than valproic acid. And it might be simply because it was in an enteric-coated form, or it might be because of the divalproic nature of it. Now, interestingly enough, apparently there are divalproic sodium molecules, there's divalproic uh, magnesium, magnesium, I think, as well, that you can run across. There are sprinkle formulations of this medication. There is an oral formulation, a liquid formulation, rather. There's a tablet formulation. This this comes in just about everything, and I guess if you're trying to grow hair again, a, a cream. A cream. <laughs> um, but you might have to get a compounding pharmacy to find out. Mm -hmm. So so it's this molecule that's been around since the 1960s, right? Yeah. It was, we, we were talking about that earlier today. That I think it was in that same uh, article out of India that said that they had been using it since 1967 or, or something like that. Or, Sweden. or even early. Oh, I think Sweden. in Sweden. That's yeah, they were using it in Sweden since 1967. And um, I think one of the things we were looking for was maybe other ways that you can avoid having hair loss. And, and my understanding from the abstract, I was only able to get the abstract of that, that article, um, uh, but what they said was that start low, go slow, and it's a pretty tolerable medication. And of course, it was very tolerable compared to other medications that were available in the 1960s and 1970s. Mm -hmm. And I think the neurologist would argue now that there are even more molecules that are a little uh, less likely to cause problems, which is kind of cool. Um, black box warnings. So we talk about black box warnings a lot on our unit. Did you come across the black box warnings for divalproics? Yeah, so the main... Uh, 
the main black box warnings that I was able to run across, it, it kind of came in, in three. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to look at the FDA uh, printed insert packet for valproic acid and, and a couple other resources. The main one is that it is completely contraindicated with people with a history of uh, hepatic disease. Um, one of the, the main drastic side effects is uh, hepatic failure um, for Depakote or, or for valproic acid. Um, the other one that I, this is another G Liz thing that I, I didn't know before, but um, individuals that have a confirmed case or, or possible case of hereditary uh, mitochondrial diseases, one of the mechanisms of, of metabolism of valproic acid is a beta oxidation form in, in the mitochondria. And so if these, these individuals with hereditary mitochondrial diseases uh, take valproic acid, it can cause some, some serious side effects as well. So that was another one. And then um, the, the other two that are pretty common, especially for board exams, would be the teratogenic nature for uh, fetuses and, and newborn children. Um, mainly fetuses, and then uh, pancreatitis. So those were the four big ones that I, I really ran into. Very good. So I'm gonna I'm gonna recap those just a little bit. The first one was fetal risk. Mm-hmm. This seems to be a little bit of a change in the way that I recall black box warnings being written. And fetal risk included a couple of things, including major malformations, neural tube defects, and the last one was low IQ that I saw. So this is a little bit of new packaging. It looked like the package was updated in uh, the winter of last year, winter of 2019, to have that specific kind of language. The second, um, the second thing that I saw was hepatotoxicity. Now I didn't, I didn't see that it was contraindicated in liver failure. What I saw was um, that there were warnings for children under the age of two. Mm and that there were warnings for people that had mitochondrial DNA polymerase, yeah. um, uh, genetic um, abnormalities, Yeah, I, th- I think might be the right way. Now, I, I may have missed the liver failure part of that. I think in one of the FDA articles that I read uh, that it said maybe to exercise extreme caution or more caution in patients with either acute or chronic uh, liver uh, Which makes a lot of sense, right? It, it doesn't make a lot of sense to give a medication to somebody that can hurt them a lot more along the way. Well, and going back to that mitochondrial, the hereditary mitochondrial diseases, that's one of the Absolutely. between 30 and 40% of valproic acid is metabolized there. The other portion, the main portion is metabolized in the liver uh, or within those hepatocytes in, in general. And so um, it would make sense that if someone has liver issues, you, probably should be more careful using it. And then the third one I had pancreatic, uh, pancreatitis, including fatal hemorrhagic cases. And I ran across that too, especially in pediatric cases, I think. Topic change again. Yes. Indications for valproic acid. Uh, so uh, again, this was another one that, that I feel like I'm learning a ton with this little assignment and I, I've really enjoyed it. Um, that's probably good, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, again, big indications as I was thinking about it for step one would be uh, for epile- epilepsy or working to stabilize the you know any type of, of uh, ion transfer in neurons. Um, so that would be you know seizures, epilepsy, but then also as a mood stabilizer for uh, you know mood disorders like bipolar depression um, and others. 
So interestingly enough, as I look at the package insert, we talk about it as a mood stabilizer, but mostly the, the way I read the package insert, it is indicated for the treatment of manic episodes associated with bipolar yeah. disorder. So th this seems to make a lot of sense. We don't necessarily reach for Depakote or valproic acid when we're trying to treat bipolar depression. Sure. But in the hospitals where we see mania, uh, Depakote's used quite often. In the in the clinical setting where we're more likely to see depression, I think other molecules come to mind first. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and maybe that's a topic for another podcast. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the second indication, now this seizure indication is a little more complicated. So they have simple uh, and complex absence seizures or an indication for multiple types of seizures that may include absence seizures or uh, uh, lastly, um, complex partial seizures. And we see, we see a surprising number of complex partial seizures here at the hospital, it seems. And lastly, migraines. Migraines, of course. Migraines, yeah. <laughs> Has the FDA indication for that. Um, a couple of things to watch for. All right, so we started off talking about hair loss mm -hmm. as one of the things to watch for. I think uh, one of the articles I read said something along the lines of, you can lose about 40% of your hair before you start noticing it. I thought, oh, that seems like a lot of hair to lose before you really start noticing it. So, so this is something that um, asking your patients to watch for more hair in their brush or their mm -hmm. comb, hair on their pillow, those kinds of things is helpful. And you might be able to pick that up before it becomes cosmetic, cosmetically disfiguring. Right? Um, but other things that pop up quite often, we see just a crazy amount of ammonia elevations here yeah. at the state hospital. And I'm, I'm always surprised by that. I keep thinking, hey, how, did this, how did these not get caught sooner? But there's actually some language within the package insert, uh, the prescribing information about ammonia elevations. Were you able to read through that? You know, it's interesting. I didn't read that portion of the package insert, but I was able to come across many, many other articles on PubMed and, and other resources that had talked about the, a lot of the times the asymptomatic nature of that increased or elevated ammonia levels. Uh, only, a, a, I mean, a relatively small subset of patients become symptomatic with that, uh, those elevated ammonia levels, if I'm understanding it correctly. Um, but I'm, I'm interested to hear some of that, the wordage and that vocabulary that they used. So uh, the actual language that they used was along the lines of watch out for ornithine transcarbamylase uh, deficiency, other urea cycle deficiencies, because those will trip you up, all of those will. They mentioned uh, topiramate as being a, a co-administered molecule that causes some problems. We see that sometimes in psych settings, even though topiramate doesn't have an FDA indication for illnesses that I tend to treat, mm -hmm. uh, other than maybe migraines, sometimes I treat some migraines. Um, we, we do see a lot of patients who come in taking uh, that medication. Now the other medication that we see, and I saw a paper published recently with regards to this, was um, paliperidone is, uh, uses that P-glycoprotein as an, an exporter mm -hmm. uh, in the kidneys to eliminate paliperidone, or the body uses that transporter to eliminate paliperidone. And it looks like maybe that's the, at one point I thought that was maybe the uh, the common link between those two molecules, but it looks like it's more sophisticated than that, and I, 
At this sure. point, I can't remember it, figure it out. So, <laughs> yeah. so if anybody wants to add that to the bottom of comments on the podcast, if we ever, we're waiting for the first comment on a podcast, by the way. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, one last thing. Um, we talk a lot about, oh, one other thing that shows up on board exams, uh, thrombocytopenia. Shelf exams, you see that. I don't know if you've, you, have you started your shelf exam practice questions yeah, yet? absolutely. What questions have you seen that come up regarding uh, Depakote, anti-valproic acid, valproic acid? Yeah, most of the time, especially with step one as, and as I'm getting more and more attuned to what they're looking for me or looking for me to answer on step two, um, it's more about the black box warnings, I feel like most of the time is their question. Very rarely, I feel like in step two, do they start asking, or on the shelf exams, are they asking you about you know, biochemical intermediates and you know, certain pathways that it's gonna cause issues in. But the things that I'm, I'm really coming across mainly would be that hepatotoxicity. But then if you have a patient you know, who has a history of taking valproic acid due to either using it um, you know, for uh, as an anti-epileptic or, or some other, you know, indication, uh, and you get routine labs, and it comes back that their, you know, platelets are at 50,000 or something like that, what would, be, and they would have given you a list of their complex medical history with all of their different medications they're taking, uh, it would likely be the question of, you know, what, what medication is most likely causing this you know, uh, asymptomatic thrombocytopenia. And so understanding that that's a part of its effect profile, as well as, you know, uh, uh, other black, warn black spot warnings, what I, I would think would be a high yield kind of a, a question that, that would be asked. I don't want to spend a lot longer on, mm -hmm. on Depakote. I think we've probably covered a lot of what we need to know. I'll add just uh, one or two quick comments. That is that if you have three times the upper limit of your enzymes on your LFTs, AST and ALT, that's a, a time when you would strongly consider changing the medication. That might be something that uh, comes up on those exams. Um, and the blood level generally for treatment of bipolar disorder somewhere between 50 and 120 on your laboratory indices. And uh, I think that ties up most of the kinds of things you might run across or have attendings for your rotations ask you about. On that note, uh, take home messages. Jed, um, I'm not related to that roundy, roundy. Mm -hmm. uh, any take homes or anything that uh, stuck out to you during the conversation? I, I don't know a lot of the terms that, that they used. However, um, if, I, if I understood anything, it's just that you need to be able to watch your patients carefully to, to you know, watch for changes um, in behavior or uh, in this episode of your, their hair growth. And so um, not just watch for those changes themselves, but help them watch for those changes so that they can um, tell them, tell someone else next time that, that something happens before it becomes a real problem. Yeah, that's a, a great comment. One of the things that I think we focused on a lot during this rotation, Cam, you could speak to this another, maybe perhaps now, perhaps later, the idea of collaborative medication, uh, shared decision making, those kinds of things. And, and I think Jed's speaking to this, which is if you're not helping your patients be aware of how to 
use the medications they're provided. It's, it's not as a powerful, it's not as powerful of a tool in their hands as it might be, or in your hands, I suppose. I, I completely agree. I think Jed hit it right, the nail right on the head. There's an important part of being, I've, I've come to find this out through my clinical, my third year of, of clinicals, and a very important part of being a physician and, and treating your patients is that education piece. I think it's, it's priceless. If you can help to teach your patients what to look for and help them become experts of their own disease process, the best that you can, um, and educating them on you know different risk factors or different things, different uh, you know uh, situations that could come up or adverse effects, your job be- not only just gets easier, but their their care becomes much more focused. And so I think that that would probably be my take home message, just like Jeb was saying is. Educate your patients, communicate properly with them, and uh, and you know work together. Uh, yeah. That's pretty cool. You guys came out with that take-home message. I was kind of, well, in all fairness, kind of a caveman. <laughs> I, I'm like, uh, all right, so the black box warnings are. Yeah, well, <laughs> number one, you don't give this to kids under two years old or that have, uh, uh, what is it, the DNA mitochondrial mm-hmm. uh, polymerase uh, mutations. You definitely don't give this molecule to a pregnant woman, right? Or if somebody's planning on becoming pregnant, those are conversations, speaking to your point, that you really have to have well in advance. Um, And then the third item is clinical suspicion for pancreatitis in somebody that's taking Depakote. And I think all of those lend themselves to really great questions. And because this is a molecule that is used so broadly in so many places in medicine, Right, headaches, everybody treat headaches. All, so many different specialties treat headaches. Yeah. Depakote is a widely used molecule. Um, one thing I didn't mention, and probably worth mentioning, all anti-epileptics seem to increase the rate of suicidal thinking, and perhaps even suicide. I, I would have to go back and reread the package, uh, insert information about Depakote. Uh, there was a study done a number of years ago that sticks in my mind about suicide rates being higher in people that are treated for non-seizure conditions with anti-epileptics. And uh, I think based on the package insert that I read for Depakote that was updated in the last year, maybe across the board there's some elevation in suicidal ideation. And I think we've got a long ways to go to understand how all of the molecules that go into the brain affect the entire brain, the entire body, and how they interact with all of the different proteins and molecules and receptors and, and everything else going on in the body. And at some point, you know, hopefully we'll have genomic medicine, right? Yeah. On that note, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for spending some time with me. I really appreciate it. And uh, Cam, hopefully we'll have you back for another guest appearance. And uh, Jed, who knows, maybe you'll be uh, unfortunate enough to wander through my office another time when, <laughs> when this is about to happen and, and have the... Uh, unhappy opportunity of being able to join us again. <laughs> it's, it's been great, so thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Dr. Andy.